You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. This morning, uh, I'm preaching on Colossians 4, verses 7 through 18, and this is the last, the closing text uh, in the book of Colossians, and this is the, the final ser- uh, series, sermon, the series that we've been going through the book of Colossians over the past few weeks. And so to give just kind of a brief uh, closing word to kind of unify this sermon, Uh, series that we've been going through. Uh, The thrust of the series through Colossians, um, I think Paul's kind of central aim in this book to the Colossians has been to tell uh, and really emphasize the simplicity of Christianity. The simplicity of Christianity, the singular focus that we have, uh, that in Jesus we have a singular Savior, a singular delight, singular trust, singular allegiance, as Marshall's talked about over the past few weeks. And and, and this week we're going to look at how God is building for himself a singular church, one people of God, and what that looks like then and what it can look like today. Uh, but yes, the, the, the thrust of this series has really been simplicity. And to illustrate this, um, this, is, this is kind of a true, true across the board. I, I watched this TED Talk uh, once, um, uh, probably almost 10 years ago now. A guy named Murray Gelman, he's a retired physicist, particle physicist, theoretical physicist. And he, he gave this talk called Beauty, Truth, and Physics. Um, to show uh, that, uh, that, that, that science, true science, is usually beautiful. That the way that science works, there's all these people who do experiments and come up with these theories. And if you have two competing theories, usually the more beautiful one, which he defines, you know, if, you, if you can write the theory in a brief, very brief space without a lot of complication, that's essentially what we mean by beauty or elegance. Simple. The most simple theory is probably the right one. Um, and we notice, you know, growing up as kids, uh, when we learn how to share, for example, um, kids, you know, you'll realize that you start getting in tr- you're, you've been getting in trouble because you haven't been sharing, you get in fights with your friends because you haven't been sharing, and then at some point, you realize, okay, I should start sharing, and so the kids come up with these really great plans for how to share. They say, okay, you ask for something, I'll give it to you for two minutes, and then you have to give it back to me for two minutes, and I'll give it to you for two minutes after I've had two minutes, and then we're going to make sure you have an equal number of turns. Uh, and I know I'm sitting in this chair that you probably want to sit in, so you can have a turn in my chair, and then I have a turn in your chair, and then we'll trade back, make sure everything's fair. It's really, this, yeah, they're, they're really smart, right? But they're really complicated. At some point, they realize uh, that things can be a lot more simple than that, usually around age 24 or 25. Um, they'll realize uh, that it can actually be a lot simpler, that it's simply good to be generous rather than selfish, right? That if someone asks for something, you just lend it to them. You don't have to count how long they have it or, you know, make sure that you've, you've gotten to be able to, you know, borrow something in return equal number of times, that it's good to be generous rather than selfish. It's selfish. It's much simpler than that. And that's what we've seen throughout this series in Colossians is that Paul, uh, uh, this, is, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, 60 to 61 AD. This is 30 years, uh, roughly 30 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. And he writes this letter to a young, brand new church. Right, struggling to understand who Jesus is and who they are because of what Jesus has done. And uh, there's, these, there's these false teachers that have arisen in their midst. We talked about this a few weeks ago, who have been preaching this really complex message. Right, these false teachers have said, no, no, in order to be a good Christian, you need to know this and this and this about these spiritual authorities and spiritual powers. You have to have these levels of knowledge and uh, you have to attain to all these. It's a very, very complex message. And, and time and again in this letter, Paul emphasized this, emphasizes this simplicity of Christianity, the singularity of Jesus. Uh, the, uh, and we desperately need to hear this today, too. Right? In an increasingly complex world where we tend to think that the more complex things are, the better. 
right, the more complex my life is, the more sophisticated I am. And in a world like this, um, Christ, his message, and Christianity pierces through in its simplicity. Right? There's no complex formula for what it means to have purpose in your life or, 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 or to, be, to be in good standing with God, that you need to fix your eyes on Christ alone and the story that he's welcomed us into. And as you heard this text being read, this text really invites us into the story of Christianity. As you heard it read, Gavin did a great job with all those names. There's a lot of names in this passage, and, and honestly, there's, we often gloss over sections like this, right? Whether it's because it's been 2,000 years since this happened, right? There's, these people died a long time ago. It's not as relevant for us today. Or, I think more likely, uh, the reason we gloss over this is that our style of reading has changed. Today, uh, much of our reading is we just kind of scan for information. We, uh, uh, we, we've, we've gone from reading things to enjoy the text uh, to, to this kind of strategy of mining for little pieces of information. We do it. We read tweets and emails and blogs and we read books this way. And it's, that's not always bad. Right? Much, much of the reading that I do is that way, but that's not the way that the Bible was meant to be read. If we read the Bible simply scanning for information, then our eyes will kind of lock onto these key verses that we really like and then we'll miss the in-between. And the invitation today uh, is to pause and, and, and zoom in on these, these kind of in-between verses uh, and I want to ask a simple question as we jump in, which is a, a question that I try to ask about every passage that I read, honestly. Why is this passage here? Right? Why is this in the letter? What would we be missing if we just glossed over it? What would we be missing if Paul had left it out um, of his letter? And I think uh, that we would miss uh, uh, this very collective, very human component to what God is doing in the world. The fact that Paul looks at them and says, listen, you are a part of something that is so much bigger than yourself. Uh, so our text is broken, broken into three sections, uh, verses 7 through 9, till uh, Paul gives his purpose for sending this. Verses 10 through 14, he gives some greetings from six men. Uh, and then in verses 15 through 18, Paul gives some final instructions and personal greetings. And so verses 7 through 9 is the first section. Let me read it for us. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So Paul introduces us to this man named Tychicus, and he gives him this, uh, uh, he introduces him, he gives him this threefold introduction. He calls him a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the, in the Lord. He wants to establish Tychicus in good faith because Paul is in prison at this point. Um, he wrote this letter probably while he was in prison in Rome. Um, and so he couldn't travel to bring this news to them himself. So he sends Tychicus and his companion Onesimus. And he wants to establish Tychicus as trustworthy. He wants them to receive him well so that he can tell them everything and fill in the blanks when they ask questions and that he might be an encouragement to them in line with his purpose. Verse 8, uh, to, to, I want, I'm sending him to tell, tell you how we are and to encourage your hearts. Right? And then we're introduced also to Onesimus. He's not introduced as a fellow minister or a fellow servant, but he is introduced as a faithful and beloved brother. And this is particularly interesting because Onesimus is a slave. Um, how do we know that he's a slave? It doesn't say it here that he's a slave, but we know it. Um, a couple of books after this in the New Testament, we come to this really short letter called, uh, called Philemon. Right? I used to call it Philemon. Uh, Philemon um, is, a, is a short letter that Paul writes to Philemon, this slave master, um, about his runaway slave named Onesimus. And this is that Onesimus. Um, he's a slave, and it's on this journey 
actually. Uh, we don't know exactly how Paul met Onesimus. We know that he ran away from Philemon at some point, uh, and that along his kind of runaway journey, he, he, was, he was saved, he became a Christian, uh, and then he crossed paths with Paul. And now Paul is sending Onesimus back to his master, Philemon, and, this, and it's on this same missionary journey. Philemon lives in Colossae, and so uh, Tychicus and Onesimus are carrying the letter of the Colossians and Philemon with them, uh, and Paul is sending them on this trip. Instructions to Onesimus uh, to submit to Philemon as your master, and also in the letter of Philemon, instructions for Philemon, who's also a Christian, to receive him back, right? But this time, not as a slave, but as a brother, because he is one of you. And the reason I give all these, that's kind of a lot of detail, but the reason I say that is because it's truly, uh, I think, incredible how Paul introduces him here. He says, I've sent Tychicus, and then in verse 9, and with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, a slave. We've talked about this for the past uh, couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, Colossians 3 verse 11 says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Right, we talked about how the world has these categories for people, uh, but that's not the case in God's kingdom. Uh, in the kingdom of God, regardless of worldly characteristics, we are all equal brothers and sisters, equal standing before the Lord. Last week in, in Colossians 4 verse 1, we see that even when distinctions still exist in the world, uh, as Christians, we still treat each other differently. We give one another the respect due to a child of God. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And here, when we come to today's text, we give an, we're given, given an actual example of what this can look like. Right? Paul doesn't say he sent Onesimus as a slave in Tychicus' care. Uh, he describes him as a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. Uh, he dignifies him that even as a slave on the way back to his master, um, he, is a, he is a brother on equal standing with the Lord, and the Colossians should receive him as such. They should listen to him, be encouraged by what he has to say. This is just a beautiful picture. Uh, in the next section, verses 10 through 14, uh, Paul gives greetings from six men, uh, three Jews, uh, three, uh, he calls them men of the circumcision, and three Gentiles. Let me read this for us. Verses 10 through 14. Paul says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. And there's a lot here that I won't be able to cover, but there's two things I want to point out this morning. First, uh, Paul has just addressed class reconciliation, right, with Tychicus and Onesimus. Free man, slave, you guys are brothers, you are one in Christ. Uh, and here, he continues with another example, this time, of racial and cultural reconciliation. All right, verses 10 and 11, we meet Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice, who are Jews. And then 12 through 14, we meet Epaphras, Luke, and Demas, who are all Gentiles. And this is no small thing, right? Jewish people um, were not simply a different religious group. They were a different ethnicity, right? They, were, they looked different. They talked different. They smelled different. They dressed different. There, was, there, there had been this God-imposed wall between Jew and Gentile uh, called the law, right? The law separated Jew from Gentile. The Jews, in keeping the law, were clean, and all other people, Gentiles, were unclean. And as Paul describes it in the book of Ephesians uh, 2.14, 
Uh, he says, when Jesus died, he broke down in his flesh this dividing wall of hostility, making peace between Jew and Gentile. It's beautiful. And this is, this is huge. This is probably the distinguishing feature of, of the Apostle Paul's unique ministry. Uh, it was just this, working out the relationship between Jew and Gentile. The wall has been torn down. Now, how do we interact with each other um, as one? Uh, and Paul himself was a Jew. He was a man of the circumcision, uh, as he refers to it in verse 11. And he cares deeply about his fellow Jews, saying that they've been a comfort to him. This is both because, probably uh, referring to the, the fact that they ministered to him while he was in prison, but also refers to the fact that uh, there were many of his Jewish brothers who didn't believe, and this saddened Paul. Uh, he had been saved by God, but there were a lot of Jewish people who didn't believe in Jesus. And Paul looks and says, this is a great comfort to him, that there are some who did, and that these were three who were actually ministering with and, and for him. And so when Paul writes these greetings, right, sending greetings from Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice, and then without skipping a beat, he says, uh, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas all say hi too. Um, this is truly amazing. Without skipping a beat, he goes from sending greetings from Jewish fellow workers to Gentile fellow workers, all beloved brothers who are reconciled in Christ. So they're already seeing class reconciliation with Tychicus and Onesimus. Here, they're also seeing cultural and racial reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. Uh, and Paul doesn't stop there. The, the second thing to point out um, in this middle section is this. In verse 10, Paul mentions Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, and then in parentheses he says they've received instructions about him, uh, that if he comes to you, you should welcome him. Um, this is not just kind of a, an extra superfluous detail. Paul and Mark uh, have a history that the Colossians would have known about. Uh, Paul, as an apostle, had traveled uh, far and wide on several missionary journeys. He traveled, uh, some estimates put it, over 10,000 miles that Paul traveled on foot uh, over the course of his ministry to go preach the gospel and plant churches and establish leaders in these new churches that were being started. Um, and uh, the story of Paul's ministry is told in the book of Acts, about Acts chapter 12 through 28. Um, and uh, Acts chapter 15 tells the story of Mark, how Mark, uh, who is Barnabas' cousin, Paul and Barnabas were very close friends, close uh, close brothers and companions, uh, and Mark's cousin came with them on Paul's first missionary journey, but halfway through the journey, Mark had abandoned the two of them. Right, and so they come back, and as Paul gets ready to go for his second missionary journey, he refuses to allow Mark to come with them. And so this, causes a relation, this has caused a relational break between Paul and Mark, and there's this argument between Paul and Barnabas because of this, and so Paul and Barnabas part ways at this point. So there's this huge kind of relational gulf that it opened up, and it was public. Paul wrote about it in his letters. It was written about in the book of Acts. And so the Colossians would have known this. And so uh, and that's why Paul tells them to welcome him if he comes to you. That here, this is 12 years after that had happened. Uh, news didn't travel as fast then as it does now. Uh, 12 years after that had happened, Paul says, uh, he names Mark in his greetings. He says, we're not only reconciled, uh, but Mark has been ministering to me while I'm in prison. He's a great comfort to me. All right? So we, we were not only seeing class reconciliation with Tychicus and Onesimus, we're not only seeing uh, cultural, uh, ethnic, cultural, racial reconciliation with uh, Jew and Gentile, but we're also seeing relational reconciliation, Paul and Mark and Paul and Barnabas. Uh, Paul hasn't, in other words, uh, Paul hasn't been spending this whole letter of Colossians up until this point setting up a bunch of ideals just to say, here's what can happen. No, he says, this is what is happening because of Christ and the work that Christ is doing in his church to make his people one. Uh, and before we move on, look back at verse 8. This is the purpose that Paul sends Tychicus for. He says, I sent Tychicus to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Right? So Paul had just talked, as he just said, 
you guys should be reconciled with one another. In chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, Paul had said this. He said, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Uh, reconcile with one another, right? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So Paul had just said, go do this. Go be reconciled with one another. You've been forgiven, so now you are called to go forgive other people. And here he's essentially saying, look, this is actually happening. I'm not just telling you to do this. This is actually happening. It's one thing to say something, and it's a whole other thing to do something. And this is not merely theoretical for Paul. Right? This, this is, he's pointing to real fruit that God is bearing in his life and around the world as a result of the gospel. Uh, so Paul's purpose was to let them know what is happening so that this could be encouraging for the Colossians. And why is this so important? Right? Why does Paul devote a sixth of this short letter to, to this extended, relatively extended section of greeting so that they might be encouraged about what's going on? Um, I think it's because of what's going on in Colossae. Um, and, and there's a lot that we have in common even today with what was going on in Colossae. Um, like I said, uh, I mentioned briefly before, there had been these, uh, the reason Paul sent this letter in the first place is because these false teachers had arisen in Colossae, um, and they were causing uh, all these divisions in uh, the Colossian church. And so Epaphras, this, the man who had planted the Colossian church, who Paul refers to in the middle here, um, Epaphras had come to Paul to say, Paul, I, we need help. Right? There's all these divisions, there's these false teachers, we need your help. Uh, would you help us? And so Paul sends this letter to say to the Colossians, listen, I know things are hard, but don't let this struggle be your reality, right? Um, if, I wanna, if we want to speculate a little bit, what the, this picture right now of me talking and you commonly sitting and listening to what I have to say, this probably wasn't what things looked like in, Coloss looked like in uh, Colossae at this point. There was someone preaching and then someone would stand up and say, I disagree, we should do this. I disagree, we should do this. And there's all these kinds of things happening in the church in Colossae. And so Paul says, listen, don't let this be your reality. In fact, it doesn't have to be. Reconciliation is actually happening, so seek the same yourself. And why does he do this? Because of the human condition, I think. Um, if we think about it, if we're honest with ourselves, uh, it's easy for us to think that our experiences uh, are the only reality there is, right? that we are the center of the world. When I was in college, we had this phrase that we would say, um, I, don't know if you, I don't know if people still say it today, but we said, um, it's your world. Right? I don't know if you've heard that. Uh, you're sitting in class, and everyone's raising their hand to ask a question to the professor, and then someone just kind of blurts out, hey, I have a question. You know, everyone's like, oh, your world. You know, we're just living in it. Or if someone cuts you off on the road, uh, your world, come on in, um, uh, cuts in line. Have you guys heard that? It's your world. Might have seen some, some head shakes. Um, but the, the sarcasm kind of beneath, beneath that, that phrase is really kind of cuts at the heart of, of what I think uh, we're seeing here, is that there are people who you look at and you're like, man, that person thinks that they're the only person in the world, right? that all of us are just kind of here uh, who need to kind of move around so that, to make room for him or her, right? Um, and this, I think, is central to the human condition, right? Uh, this intense preoccupation with yourself and with things to do directly with you, and it's a huge problem because if it's my own self and my own experience which define the entirety of reality for me, then all of these things that Paul has been describing um, about unity become other people's problems, right? Um, I don't harbor anger or enmity against my wife, uh, and if she uh, responds, doesn't respond well to my way of being a husband, then that's her issue, right? I'm not a racist. 
Uh, but if someone feels like something that I've said or something that I've done sounds racist, um, that's their problem. In fact, when they told me about it, I was really offended, right? Uh, they called me a racist, and so they need to learn, learn how to talk to me um, and then come back and deal with their problem uh, in the meantime, right? Or you say, you know, I see a problem and I see the solution, so I'm going to just kind of charge ahead and, 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 and pursue that solution. If there's people who disagree with me, that's okay, they're wrong. They'll see that I'm right and they'll get on board later, right? Um, this, is, this is the human condition, um, and Paul ends his letter with this section of story to pull the Colossians out of themselves, to, to, to help them zoom out to say, look, um, there are other things going on too. I think he has two motivations. First, he, he points them outside of themselves to look at what God is doing elsewhere because if everyone's so wrapped up with their own individual concerns, right, that they'll miss uh, the other people who are unlike them with their own concerns, and so they'll miss the very unity that Jesus died for in his church. Right, and the second motivation, I think, um, another reason I think Paul includes this last section is that there's often uh, a, also a collective risk of this kind of thing, a collective risk of tunnel vision uh, in the same way that individuals can be self-absorbed, right, neglecting to see other people, uh, so too can communities begin to grow inward and start thinking that they're the center of the world. Right? And so Paul says, uh, you can almost hear him saying, look, I know things are tough, but don't let that be your reality. Pursue reconciliation, even though it seems hard. Um, it can actually happen. And he points them to specific examples of how it's happening. And, and think about it. Why do we point people not just to live by a set of principles, but also to role models? Right? Why are role models so important? It's because role models are actual people right, with actual stories that can be pictured and aimed for rather than simply some ideal statements. Right? That's why I love reading biographies. Biographies are amazing because they're real people who work out the complexities of real life um, and you get to read and, and see how other people have done it. Right? It's one thing uh, to tell someone in prison, here's what you need to do when you get out. Right? It's another thing for someone who's been in prison and who's been successful after getting out. Uh, it's, it's another thing for them to go in and say, hey, here's, here's what it could actually look like for you to be successful. It's one thing for someone who's struggling with addiction to hear someone say, here's some things you can try. And it's another thing for someone who's also struggled with addiction to look and say, here's some things that I tried that didn't work, and here's some things that I tried that did. Be encouraged. Christian, it's one thing for, for someone to say, you should share the gospel with people. Right? It's another thing for someone to say, here's an example of how uh, and when I shared the gospel with someone, and by God's grace, they came to Christ. Right? Stories are so powerful, and Paul sees that here. Right? Look, here's what actually is happening. Uh, but he's not done here. Let's look at the final section of our text. Chapter 4, verses 15 uh, through 18. Paul says this, he says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea, and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see to it that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Uh, again, there's a lot here, three things that I want to point out. First, uh, in verse 15, when Paul says, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house, Paul is saying, hey, listen, I'm a part of this too, right? Because up until this point, Paul, you know, Paul is not some detached third party. He, say, he doesn't say, okay, I've received this stuff from God, now I'm going to tell you. You know, I've received this, you know, these greetings from these other people, now I'm going to tell you, but I'm just kind of a detached third party. No, Paul says, I am intimately involved in this too, right? I, I am a part of what God's doing, and I'm not some detached third party. I care deeply about you, so here's my greetings. I send my greetings too. The second thing I want to point out um, is that Paul gives them instruction, verse 16, 
to read this letter and then send it to Laodicea and also read the one that, 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 uh, that they received in Laodicea. Um, so Paul gives this encouragement to have these letters read among different churches. And this points to the fact that uh, Paul knows that, that these letters are more than merely occasional. All right? They're more than simply uh, immediately significant. Right? That there's truth in these letters. There's truth that he writes about as an apostle that applies across the world. Uh, and also throughout time, that's why they're writing these things down, right? And so, uh, in fact, this is one of the places where we see hints of the beginnings of a canon, right? what would later become the Bible. The Bible that we have is a collection of, of ancient writings, right? A collection of letters that have put, been put together in a single volume for us. Um, and we're not Colossians, but why are we reading the letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians? Right? It's because there's a greater applicability. Uh, when Paul says, guard the deposit entrusted to you, or uh, which he said to Timothy, or when he says things like live in accordance with the teaching you have received, as he said earlier in Colossians. These early churches, uh, that's what Paul's talking about. These early churches saw themselves as a, as a homogenous group, right? They're different, very different, but they're homogenous in that they're united, um, unified by their mutual foundation that Christ has given them through the teaching of his apostles. And so as these letters would have been received, uh, both as authoritative and helpful, all across the world in this time, um, when we look at them today, we can know that they're also authoritative and helpful in our lives too. They might take, us a take, a, take doing a little bit more work kind of culturally to cross the gap of 2,000 years, but they are just as applicable and true and life-giving as they were when they were originally written by God's grace. And the third thing uh, to point out in this closing section is, is his closing. I, Paul, write this greeting, verse 18. Uh, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So Paul gives this uh, apostolic signature. Um, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, uh, partly to authenticate the letter. Um, at this time, very normal practice for scribes to be the ones writing down letters on behalf of other people uh, because uh, papyrus, what they wrote on, uh, and other things, but prim primarily papyrus and ink um, was very expensive. And so they'd have these professional scribes who could write very small and very neat um, so as to conserve space. And so you can see, so Paul's partly kind of authenticating, but also you can see that his personal Desire. Paul didn't do this in all of his letters, but he does it here. He says, no, no, I want to write this myself. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. The handwriting changes and they look and they say, wow, this is the Apostle Paul who wrote this to us. And he cares deeply about us. And he writes it with his own hand. He includes two other things. He says, remember my chains, grace be with you. He gives a prayer request and a blessing. Uh, the prayer request is, is when Paul says, uh, remember my chains, this is a stimulus to prayer for him. Right? Uh, it's a poignant image, not only because it's an image of Paul in chains on account of the ministry that he's been performing, um, but it's also kind of continuing on this theme that we've been talking about from before. Paul says, look up, right? look up from where you are. Know that you are the beneficiaries of suffering and work that's being done outside of the walls of your church. And so when we read this, we can look and say, man, we, this happened 2,000 years ago. Over the past 2,000 years, we are the beneficiaries, the Bibles that we have in our hands, the fact that we can sit in a space and freely worship. We stand on the shoulders of brothers and sisters, godly brothers and sisters who prayed that this might be the case, who worked hard to bring this about, and we are the beneficiaries of the suffering and work of people throughout history. And it's also for us a, a point to remember that there's also, there's, there are people who don't have it like this around the world. There are brothers and sisters that we have who are in chains, who are being persecuted, who are suffering greatly because of their faith in Christ. And so we, we too should pray for them. We should remember their chains and pray for them. And in the blessing, when Paul says, grace be with you, um, these last words that he gives are this brief blessing. 
uh, and he points uh, to where they get the pay. In fact, this is, that's, that's how, it's how Paul opens the letter. Colossians 1, verse 2, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And he closes the same thing. Grace be with you. Because remember, Paul's writing this letter against false teachers who have arisen. Right? And what he's saying here is he's saying, listen, if you don't have the very power of God, if God isn't in this, um, that what I've, everything that I've just said is just another one of those philosophies. Just you put it up with all the rest of the, these false teachers with all their different ideas of what it looks, put it up next to them because without the power of God, it's nothing more than just human words. That's why he closes, he says, grace be with you. May God by his grace empower you to believe that this is true and to see it bear fruit in your lives. So Paul closes uh, with this blessing of God's grace being upon them. And in this closing passage uh, in Colossians, I think that we're giving a very fitting closing to this whole letter. Paul gives greetings from people to people. It's not, this, uh, some, it's not an anonymous letter or some detached set of principles that they're supposed to live by, but it's a very personal response to a situation that's happening in Colossae um, and a very picture of the fact that unity and reconciliation is happening with real people across class, racial, and relational lines. Right? And as Paul points to the centrality of the word, uh, instructing them to read his words and to trust in his apostolic ministry, Right, he reminds them that it is the gracious power of God that's been working through him um, and that it has to be at work in order for these things to come about uh, and that it is. And so what, what does this mean for us? Uh, what does this all mean for us? I know there's, there's points of application that you heard that I've you know, seen throughout this text so far that we've noticed. Um, but I want to close and make two, uh, pause and make two closing observations. Um, first, as Christians, we're called to reconciliation, uh, and reconciliation takes work, right? The fact that Paul points to the simplicity of Christianity throughout this book, right, that the centrality of Christ, the simplicity, the fact that he points to its simplicity doesn't mean that it's going to be easy, right? In fact, uh, uh, Paul never says, this is true for you, so just go and relax and do nothing because everything's okay, right? We need to know that nothing we will ever do will earn our salvation, right? No, none of our good works are going to be able to earn favor from God. That's been, that is only possible for Jesus, and he has fully, uh, fully uh, captured that and offered that to us. Right? We need to know that, but that doesn't mean that we sit and do nothing. Paul says quite the opposite, repeatedly. Uh, Philippians 2, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, he says, Paul says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Uh, and in Colossians, he, refer, he hits it a number of times, and he opens the letter in chapter 1, verse 10, by saying, uh, he's, he's giving these things and praying for them so that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then in uh, chapter 2, verse 6, he says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And he gives them things that they need to put to death, work hard to put to death in their midst, and then things that they need to bring to life inside them. And so this life um, is, is, is a life of hard work uh, in its simplicity. I heard it said once, um, you don't drift towards holiness, you drift away from it. You don't drift towards holiness, right? You drift away from it. Um, a life that is lived by God's grace uh, is not a life of passivity, 
Right? It's, not, it's not passive. It's a life of leaning into God's grace as we put great effort into walking and living in a manner worthy of our calling. Right? And here, we are called to reconciliation. We need to know the same thing about that. Reconciliation doesn't just happen. We don't just drift into reconciled relationships. Um, they take work. There might be people in your life who you need to reconcile with. Right? There might be people in here who you need to reconcile with. Um, sometimes it's going to be based uh, across racial and class lines. Uh, sometimes it'll be based you know, across political or social lines. Um, and listen, this is not a call to demand reconciliation and unity from others. Right? You are not to go out and ask things of other people that you're not willing to do yourself. Right? This is, you know, sometimes you won't even know uh, where you need to be reconciled, what lines you need to cross until you start asking yourself uh, questions. You know, maybe some hard questions that you've never asked yourself before. Like, why do none of my friends disagree with me? Right? Why do I find it so easy to get annoyed at this kind of person? Right? The list goes on, all kinds of questions, but um, this is going to take work. Right? And the patient, hard work uh, of reaching across the line with humility and love to pursue reconciliation needs to be a reality for us. Um, it needs to be, because if we pursue this in our daily lives, in our relationships, then by God's grace, that will create a culture in our relationships that will spread outwards. Um, that by God's grace, if we're all doing this, then our church, this will be a culture where this happens. Um, and then this will be able to spread to the greater church community, because, listen, uh, we want this to happen in all the churches in Houston <laughs> across the world. We want to be a unified church, right? And this is not a pipe dream, right? It's not, it's Satan would love us to believe that this is, you know, the fact that your actions and your obedience and your seeking to, to pursue reconciliation, that that could actually affect change in our church culture and in, in the culture in the city. The fact, Satan wants us to believe, oh, that's not possible. We're just going to sit back. God's going to have his way. No, uh, we should pray to this end. We should work hard to this end because Jesus will bring about unity in his church and he's going to use us to do it by the power of the Spirit. Uh, he will be building his church into one church. As Christians, we're called to reconciliation, and reconciliation takes work. So let's dig in together and see what God might do in our midst uh, as we pursue obedience in this way. And the second and last thing uh, that I'll say is this. Paul wrote this closing section um, to encourage the Colossians by telling them to look up from their immediate surroundings, right? To, to listen to what God's doing elsewhere uh, and be encouraged. And I think we could benefit from hearing this uh, in a number of ways. For starters, um, as American Christians, it's so easy for us to think that we are the epicenter of the world Christian movement. Uh, and as we look around, because the church is shrieking, percentage, uh, shrinking, uh, shrieking sometimes, uh, shrinking, um, that because the church is shrinking percentage-wise in our culture, which is true, um, that, that things uh, look bleak and dark. You know, the world's falling apart. It's easy for us to think this way. Um, but listen, that's far from the truth. Right. In fact, the majority of, of the world's Christians live in Asia right now. And that's not just because of the, of the bigger population in Asia. It's because of the last 30 years, there have been some incredible uh, gospel, there's been some incredible gospel work done um, in Asia. To give just two examples, the two big countries, China and India, and China, uh, in 1980, there were 3 million Christians in China. Um, that's less people than there are in Houston. And China is a much more populous country uh, than the U.S. Right? In China, there were 3 million Christians in 1980. Uh, in 1990, there were 8 million Christians in China. So more than two and a half times the number of Christians in 10 years. Uh, in 2010, that number went from 8 million uh, over 20 years to 60 million Christians in China. Now it's projected that there's going to be 85 or 90 million. I don't like pr future projections about church growth, but in 2025, it's projected that there will be 85 million Christians in China. 
uh, God is doing a great work in China. In India, highly recommend this article that I read. It's called Incredible Indian Christianity. Uh, it was posted in Christianity Today uh, on their website. And it's about uh, particularly what's happening in northern India. Uh, they interviewed this, the president of this institute called the Delhi Bible Institute, which is a, a Bible college in the south of India. Uh, and, and, and they interviewed the, the president who said in 1980, uh, this institute in, this, in southern India sent 100 missionaries to northern India uh, to do evangelistic work. 1980, there were 100 students sent to do evangelistic work. Uh, by 2000, that number had increased to 1,000 student missionaries going to the north of India. Uh, in last year, 2015, that number grew to 7,600 missionaries sent from this one little Bible college to northern India to do evangelistic work. And this year, uh, their goal is to send 10,000. <laughs> so the, the president of, of this institute said, North India was known as the graveyard of missions. It was the heartbreak of evangelism. Now you can see how the leaven of God's truth rises slowly but surely. <laughs> so India is a country where Christians are very much in the minority. Uh, but the Christian population has almost doubled in the past 10 years alone uh, because of these faithful missionaries who are doing good gospel work and God is bearing fruit in India. That's just two examples. I could name a ton of other countries. Uh, the fa- you know, in 19 of the top 20 countries with respect to the fastest percentage growth of Christians um, are in Africa or Asia. Right? 19 of the top 20 fastest growing countries percentage-wise are in Africa or Asia. The 20th was, I think, an island country in, in the Caribbean. Right? Um, so, so there's growth happening uh, in the church, and it's not happening here necessarily, but it's happening. Um, and listen, because of our unity, because of the fact that we are truly one church, these victories in other contexts are our victories too, and we get to celebrate knowing that God is building his kingdom across the world just like he said he would. Right? But not only uh, is this happening on a macro worldwide level, there are also exciting things happening now in Houston. Um, I said at the beginning I'm a church planting resident um, and, uh, here at Sojourn which means I'm preparing to start a new church in, uh, in another neighborhood of Houston, Lord willing, here in the next couple of years. Um, and I'm part of this, another residency called the Houston Church Planting Network uh, Residency. We meet once a month. Uh, and I'm in this residency with 40 other guys um, from other churches around Houston who are getting ready to plant churches in Houston. Um, and as I looked around the room uh, on day one of that residency, I was shocked at how uh, many people in the room looked different than I did. Very superficial, just based on appearance. Um, but I was shocked. I knew it would be a, a diverse group, but I didn't know it would be that diverse. I looked around, there's so many people who look different from me, who talked, I couldn't even understand. We had to have translators there for it because there were different multilingual people in the room who were preparing to plant churches. And as I've been getting a chance over the past few months to actually meet them, meet these men, hear their stories, I'm, I'm, I've heard all kinds of different backgrounds, Christian experiences, different denominations, uh, different expectations for what God might do, different strategies for church planting. It has just been blowing my mind uh, that so many different people with so many differences can come together and partner for the sake of planting churches in Houston. Um, and this is exciting. Uh, we have a lot of work to do. Don't, don't hear me say otherwise. We have a lot of work to do. But this is exciting because if you talk to more experienced, kind of older pastors in the city of Houston, they say this kind of conversation wasn't happening 10 years ago. It wasn't happening five years ago. Um, this Houston Church Planting Network as a collective of, I don't know when it was, Micah Squires isn't here, um, I don't know when it was, it's, 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 I think, five years old is this Houston Church Planting Network. This is incredibly exciting. God is at work in our city. And it's exciting because, again, the truth is that we are not multiple churches in Houston. We are one church in Houston. We are not multiple churches in Montrose. We are one church in Montrose. Um, while there are many different local churches here and around the city and around the world, 
uh, in John, uh, John chapter 17, Jesus prayed for his church to be one. He prayed for the unity of his church, and so too should we understand ourselves. We should understand ourselves that way, and we should pray along those lines too. We should pray that along class, along racial, along relational lines, that, that God would reconcile us to one another, that we might be able to truly reflect the unity that we have in Christ, because Jesus will one day return for his church. And we just sang about this, that beautiful new song. Uh, I'm still working on the melody, but the words that we sung were beautiful, right? Jesus will return one day for his church, and this is going to be a glorious day of celebration with the most diverse church that you and I could possibly imagine, right? Churches from all over the world are going to come together and be one church, worshiping and glorifying Christ alone for all eternity. (laughs) This book of Colossians um, has told us, listen, these things that normally divide people from people, this doesn't have to happen, right? As we saw that this was actually happening back then, we can also have hope that by God's grace through the Holy Spirit, it is happening now. We don't have to look far um, to see that this is actually happening and it can continue to happen and grow in our midst as we do it. Listen, be encouraged by what you've heard uh, and, and when you think things look bleak, look back at the book of Colossians. You are part of something so much bigger than yourself. Sojourn, we are a part of something so much bigger than ourselves. Be encouraged and hear today, you know, hear the call to reconciliation and the hard work of bringing, this, uh, of bringing this kind of culture about. And as we do so, lean into God, who by his grace gives us the power to believe this stuff, the power to, to work hard and see our work bear fruit, that we might actually be fruitful ministers of reconciliation, as we are described um, elsewhere in the Bible, and that by God's grace, we would be unified uh, in line with, with how Jesus prayed for us. So I'll close how Paul closed. Grace be with you. Grace be with you. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this morning and thank you for each other. Um, Thank you for the the great opportunity that we have uh, this morning and today and tomorrow, uh, next week, uh, in this coming season, the great opportunity that we have while we still have breath um, to pursue this kind of unity and this kind of reconciliation that you so yearn to see in us that you are bringing about in us. And Lord, I pray that we would make the most of the time, like Paul said just a few verses before our text, that we would uh, make the most of the time that's been given to us. Um, and God, I, I, pray, um, I, I pray that you would forgive us for our sins, um, that you would forgive us for our self-centeredness and our individualism, um, that you would help us truly reach across lines, because there's a lot of people in our country who are hurting right now. Um, and I pray that you'd help us to be a voice of hope, um, that you'd help us not to call people to unity so quickly that we just kind of demean uh, their responses to what's going on right now, Lord, but that we would actually be able to pray together and, and listen to one another and pursue reconciliation with humility and the love that above all else is what your church should be characterized by. Lord, I, I pray that we would see true unity and reconciliation in your church. I pray that for these people in this room. I pray that uh, for churches, or for the other sojourn churches, I pray this for churches in Houston, for churches around the world, that this, the, there is something going on right now, Lord, and we're so thankful for the little window you've given into us, uh, given, given us into what you're doing. Pray that we lean into that, fix our eyes on you, um, that you bear fruit in our midst, all for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.